My name is Nyenge Sasa from Manus Province, Papua New Guinea. I am one of the local level government president in one of the LLGs here called Balopal Local Level Government. I want to thank you for giving us this opportunity to air our views regarding seabed mining in Papua New Guinea. We, the communities of Bismarck Sea and Solomon Seas in Papua New Guinea, we are totally opposing seabed mining into the country. Why? Because we believe seabed mining will just destroy our life forever. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. The Pacific region has been one of the first and worst hit when it comes to the pressures of climate change. Rising sea levels have already swallowed up some of the low-lying islands, leaving neighbouring countries and provinces of Papua New Guinea in a state of massive unease. But even after being recognised as one of the most vulnerable topographies across the planet, there's another movement brewing from beneath in the Pacific that adds another potentially disastrous threat to the very fabric of the region. Seabed mining. The show today is about the frightening push to open up the sea floor why mining companies are looking to uncharted waters, and asking, is there anyone with the power to rein them in? As we continue to strip the terrestrial environment of its valuable minerals, the search for new sources of gold, cobalt, copper, zinc and terulium, to name a few, has drastically picked up speed, as has the demand for these minerals, where today they run the technological environment around us. They're in our phones, our computers, our cars, trains, buildings and infrastructure. Our dependence on these resources, some might argue, has inevitably led us to the sea, where there lies a gold mine of untapped potential. I think it's been really attractive to mining companies for many decades, and that's because there's huge quantities of valuable metals found in the deep sea. And usually in much larger concentrations. There's higher percentages of those metals found in the ores in the deep sea than are often on land. Mining the ocean floor, according to Elsa Dominish from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, is attractive to some because it opens up the metals market for even more players. 
a lot of those metals or minerals might come exclusively from one country. Almost all the rare earths come from China and around two-thirds of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I think companies are interested in finding new sources of these metals that they may see as easier to access because they're not just dominated by one country. But it's not only appealing to players currently in the game. One of the curiosities of the deep-sea mining world is that the big players involved are not the traditional mining companies. This is Duncan Curry, legal advisor for the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. You don't have the companies that you're familiar with in Australia, for example, out there trying to figure out deep-sea technologies. So the companies that are down there, as I said, have very deep pockets. But you also have startups, you have companies that have raised money from, from hedge funds and so on. Duncan says not only are people starting to notice there's money to be made here, but also that this industry could be a potential threat. Some of the companies around the world are concerned because deep-sea mining could crash the price in minerals. Mines in Chile, for example, may find that you know, the price of copper goes down a lot if suddenly the world is flooded with, with cheap copper. The commercial realities are really quite complex. How do you think engaging in deep sea mining could potentially change the metals market? It's kind of hard to say yet if this will change it, but vehicle manufacturers I know have been quite concerned about ensuring the supply of minerals. So they've been in discussions with particular mining companies to try and ensure long-term contracts to guarantee that they'll be able to buy those metals into the future. Because if this market all of a sudden booms, they want to ensure that they have a ready supply of minerals coming in to meet their demands? Yeah, and I think the main thing is ensuring that they have it at a price that they're happy to pay for it as well. Considering the oceans cover 71% of the Earth's surface, there are many potential areas to which we could open up seabed mining, or deep sea mining. These two terms are used interchangeably. But much of the focus has been directed towards the Pacific. Particularly the cobalt, manganese, nickel and gold are found in high concentrations uh, and around Papua New Guinea. So that would be the main reason they're focusing on that area. Nautilus Minerals is a Canadian-based company and the first to acquire a commercial exploration licence to suss out the opportunities for seabed mining. Their first project, Solwara 1, is supposed to take place 30 k's off the coast of New Island Province in PNG, going 1.6 kilometres down, and would be the first seabed mining project across the planet. But the residents of Papua New Guinea are pushing back. Pushing back hard. Right now, in any rural community in Manus and in Papua New Guinea, the people in the villages are living without a lot of money, no electricity, no running water, but they they are still happy. Large-scale mining companies are coming into our country and they are telling us that uh, if we accept mining, mining will change our life for the better. If we want money, we, we can uh, sell our own fruits and vegetables into the local market here. 
to get some money to uh, sustain our living. But to uh, for the community to uh, involve in large-scale development like mining, it's not good for our community. The biggest concern for Nenga is the cost that seabed mining will have on the environment. We've seen in other parts of the world and also other parts of the country that mining has just destroyed a lot of people and their lives, livelihood. Like in um, the Fly River is being polluted. The Fly River is the second longest river in Papua New Guinea that faces ongoing damage as a result of both the Porgera and Octedi mine. For Octedi, it has been reported that in its near 35-year operation, more than 2 billion tonnes of untreated mining waste has been discharged into the Octedi River. The damage has disrupted the lives of more than 50,000 villagers living downstream from the river system, who've said the scale of the disaster has cancelled out any benefits the mine were to have offered in the first place. The damage from terrestrial mining has been evidenced throughout history. But as we look to the ocean, and particularly the ecosystems of the deep sea, we don't know much about them yet. Frankly, we, we know less about the deep sea than we do you know, the surface of the moon. And they're quite vulnerable and undisturbed ecosystems that we should be trying to preserve. Elsa says there are three main areas when it comes to deep-sea mining. The first is the harvesting of polymetallic nodules. Which are sort of potato-sized clumps of metals. There are also hydrothermal vents. Um, which are a particularly rare type of ecosystem that have uh, sulphide deposits with lots of valuable metals. And ferromanganese crusts. Going after these minerals would, to an extent, involve digging or dredging the ocean floor. Most of the proposals for deep sea mining involve pulling up the sediment from the sea floor, processing it on board a mining vessel on the surface, and then returning it. There are both problems in returning that ground sediment to the sea floor, but also in dredging it in the first place. This could potentially remove the hard substrate that being the surface of the sediment, and taking with it the habitats that important organisms nestle themselves in as a home. And if we're hearkening back to mining practices in the past, Mm. we've seen how destructive they can be. How can we ensure that by engaging in deep sea mining there will be no ecological damage taking place? I think um, it's it's quite likely there will be ecological damage. I mean, the deep sea is a very fragile ecosystem, and um, I, I know a lot of sort of marine scientists have warned that the impacts of this could be quite destructive. Fortunately, there are international protections in place that protect the seafloor from free-for-all exploitation. The deep sea falls under the protections of the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea that outlines the rights and responsibilities of akin parties, that being 168 countries, when it comes to their actions in the oceans and management of marine natural resources. That convention explicitly 
said that the deep sea area where these minerals are found is known as the common heritage of mankind. As the common heritage of mankind, the deep sea is an area of such significance, there's an international obligation to protect it from being exploited, as well as a belief that it should be held in trust for future generations. But Duncan argues that our knowledge now far exceeds that of the late 70s, and that today, the Convention is struggling to offer the deep sea appropriate protections. This whole regime was put into place, really, I think, in the absence of a lot of information that we have now, including absence of information about biodiversity. Duncan points out that even the word biodiversity wasn't included in the original convention. I think what we're really struggling with is this fact that this regime was put into place 40 years ago, and yet now we're faced with countries and companies trying to undertake this activity with a lot of scientists saying, well, hang on a minute, you're potentially destroying biodiversity that we have not even discovered yet. In 1994, the Convention set up the International Seabed Authority as the body that would regulate the practice of deep-sea mining. To date, 29 exploration licences have been issued by the Authority in parts of the Pacific, Atlantic and Indian Oceans. Do we know if there are any environmental standards of which need to be met in the approval of that licence? Well, that's a good question because... The licenses themselves are not public. We've called for them to be made public and they're not yet, so we don't know exactly what they say. Also, the whole process for assessment of the environmental effects is still very, very unclear. There are no processes in place in the CBL Authority for assessment and for looking at that test and saying, okay, well, you know, these effects are going to be minor or actually we're really concerned about the effects and therefore you need to change the way you're doing it or we need to change the monitoring or you don't need to do it at all. That process is just simply not in place yet, which is a real concern. The next step to engage in deep sea mining would be to obtain an exploitation licence. And so legally, where do we stand when it comes to issuing exploitation licensing? It can't be done in the international area because the regulations are not in place. All you can do is exploration at this stage, but they can be agreed. So that's why both the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition and a number of other non-governmental organisations are involved and have been involved, because there's a very real danger that this whole regime is put into place and nailed down, and it will be virtually impossible to unpick. You've got a very complex web of contracts put into place. Very, very difficult to, to come in and pick once, once that's done. And with these exploration licences not being particularly transparent, how does that make you feel moving forward into potentially swearing in exploitation licensing? Well, that, that's exactly right, particularly in an area where you're down 5,000 metres, so you'd have no way of knowing what's happening down there without the transparency, without reporting of the data. You're in totally uncharted waters, <laughs> literally, here, because how can you monitor it? How can you involve the public? And even who are the stakeholders when, when you're talking about areas in the middle of the ocean 5,000 metres down? Potentially, everyone on the planet has an interest in, in what's happening down there. 
when we potentially reach this point in handing out exploitation licenses for people to then go down and actually engage in this practice. Legally, would the name be changed? Because I wouldn't imagine there'd be a company of which would then want to say, well, we've just acquired an exploitation license. Exploitation <laughs> carries a pretty heavy weight. Uh, interesting. Um, no, well, that, that's what they're called. And uh, the legal title is Plan of Work. But, um, yeah, no, the, the International Seabed Authority is very clear in calling these exploitation regulations. That, that probably would be the title of the regulation. So I think we're really seeing, I think in this stage, the technology getting ahead of the, the regulation. In the global shift to renewable energy, some are arguing the minerals of the deep will be crucial in helping us reach our clean energy goals. The metals of the sea floor would be harvested to form renewable technologies such as solar panels, wind turbines and lithium-ion batteries. In 2016, Elsa Dominish from UTS was involved in a research project assessing whether deep-sea mining would help us reach a 100% renewable energy future. Is this a necessary industry in which we need to engage in to be able to meet some of these goals? I would say that deep-sea mining is is not a necessity. Um, At the moment, we're undertaking research to understand how much of these particular metals we'll need for an ambitious renewable energy transition. This research is currently underway, but it's showing... While demand will grow significantly for these metals, there are other opportunities to gather them that don't involve damaging communities and fragile ecosystems. And that's the recycling of these metals. And also, the recycling of renewable technologies. Do you know the typical life cycle of something like a solar panel? So a solar panel usually lasts around 30 years, a wind turbine around 25 years, and a lithium-ion battery for a car, sort of 8 to 10 years. If I'm thinking about renewable energy, the buzz has been more omnipresent within the past 5 to 10 years or so. Are there solar panels which are nearing their end of life currently at this point? Yeah, I think in the next few years, a lot of them will be nearing the end of life. Particularly in Australia, we've had a lot of solar panels installed on households. And it's good to recycle them because we can reuse the glass and the metals in those panels. But also, we don't want to end up with a huge pile of of waste sitting there doing nothing. But Elsa says it's batteries that are both the biggest challenge and opportunity. Batteries use so much metals compared to the other technologies. Cobalt and nickel are the most valuable metals in a lithium-ion battery, so they're being recovered at quite high rates. But even though lithium-ion batteries may be recycled, we're not actually recapturing the lithium from those batteries. Um, But at the moment, it's cheaper to get lithium from a mine than it is to get it from a battery. And it's more expensive because it's a more intense process as to extract the lithium? Yeah, it's, it's a complicated process. So either they can be sort of melted down or they can be dismantled and then use chemical processes. So that's why there's been less emphasis on recycling the lithium out of batteries. As for the Pacific, 
the slated Solwara 1 project at this point has been set adrift. Amid falls in stock prices for Nautilus Minerals and divestments from Anglo-American, a multinational mining company and one of Nautilus's biggest shareholders, it appears the project is facing further pushbacks. However, the cost to the communities of PNG remain very real, should it go ahead. But even with things currently on hiatus for Solwara 1, the communities remain unconvinced that deep-sea mining would work in their favour. Our goals is to totally stop seabed mining in Papua New Guinea. So my challenge to the government and to the mining companies are if you're thinking that you will change our life for the better, uh, I think that way of thinking it's not right. Because uh, Papua New Guinea, we have been living our simple lifestyle for years. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and we're also on iTunes. You just need to search for Think Sustainability. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time.